0: Acts chapter 9 and uh, our message this morning is titled, Welcome to the Family. Uh, and this is a, a message particularly prompted by what we've been seeing as we've gone through the book of Acts. And, and we've seen this incredible conversion story here in Acts chapter 9 of, of Saul of Tarsus, the persecutor of the church, the the, the the terrorist of the church, if you would, who is radically... And immediately saved by Jesus Christ. And so this story, as we come through a list of stories of individuals in Acts that Luke has set out for us, this story is supposed to shock us and just just leave us in awe at the power and the wonder of God. And this morning, what I want us to look at is the ministry that Paul begins after he is saved. He is a baby Christian. And one who has great guilt over what has happened and and who he was before he came to Christ. And yet, what we see in this passage is an example for all believers, whether a new believer or a a seasoned believer, of how we're to interact with the family of God, of how we're to be a part of the family of God for for every believer. And, And so often... We forget this, so often we, uh, we are like the Navy that has, have you ever heard of the mothball Navy? The Navy has over 700 ships uh, that they have anchored in, in ports um, throughout the United States, and, and these are old ships that have been decommissioned or sometimes uh, commercial ships that the Navy has purchased. And and the Navy spends a lot of time and a lot of money in, in trying to maintain these ships just enough that if they're needed, that they could be used. But for the most part, this whole floating armada in these ports just sits there doing nothing but sucking up resources. Now, if you ask any pastor, they'll tell you that this is probably the biggest problem in the church. We have mothball Christians. Individuals who, uh, who utilize and need resources but don't contribute or serve very much back into the church. You ever heard of the 80-20 rule in churches? The 80-20 rule is that 80% of the people do, or 20% of the people do 80% of the work. And, and so this is, as we look. Here in Acts at Acts chapter 9, this isn't the intent that God would have for his children. He, he would have that we would be engaged. God gifts each of us if we are believers with the Holy Spirit and with spiritual gifts that we would use. I think of that great passage in Acts chapter or in uh in, in Romans. No. Now I've got to think where it is. Uh, where it says that uh Ephesians 2, that's where it is. I'm getting old. Um, Ephesians 2, where it says, uh, we have been saved by faith, not of our works. Predestined to walk in good works that God has called us to. That there are good works that God has called us to. The, the reason that God has called us into salvation is not to be the mothball navy, but that there is something specific and Specific and unique that God has called you to and enabled you to, that you could be of service to him and of service to the body together. And so what we see this morning is we see that that Paul immediately begins to minister. Paul immediately begins to do the things that are not necessarily exceptional for Paul, but are to be what all believers are to be about and to do. So if you would read, I want to read the text, if you'll follow along with me. We're going to begin in Acts chapter 9, verses 19 through 31. Acts chapter 9, verses 19 through 31. It says, in taking food, he was strengthened. This is Paul. Um, Ananias had come and prayed over him. The scales had fallen off his eyes. He'd spent three days fasting and praying. And his immediate response here in verse 19 is taking food. He was strengthened. And for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of all of those who called upon his name? Is he not the, not come here for this purpose to bring them bound to the chief priests? But Paul increased all the more in strength, and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Verse 23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night, led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Verse 26. And when they had come to Jerusalem... but they were seeking to kill him. And then the, and when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and off to Tarsus. And so the church throughout all of Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Now there's five lessons that I, I want us to learn here from this text that, that I believe again, is an example of not just Paul as he becomes a Christian, but an example for all of us as we're Christians of of what we should be engaged in so that we wouldn't be part of the, the mothball navy, so to speak. So here's the first. All believers should be engaged in going. All believers should be engaged in going. If you look at verse 19, it says, as soon as he was... Um, You you see the immediacy here that Luke says. Taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. Isn't that amazing? Paul, the, the great enemy of the church, one who had great knowledge and great zeal of God, but hated Jesus and hated Christians, who immediately is transformed by Jesus, immediately has to tell others about Jesus. Do you remember when you became a Christian? I do. If you had a a dramatic change in your life as, as I did, if you didn't come from a background in church, but all of a sudden found yourself introduced to the church... And to the people of God. You may have a, a background and example like I did. And that is I had to tell everybody. I wanted to tell everybody that I was a Christian. And I wanted to tell everybody about Jesus. And how amazing he was. I've told you this before. I only, I only illustrate it because it really illustrates the zeal that I had. And that is one of the first things I did when I got saved. Was I, I took the, the Green Day Dookie album. And I made Christian lyrics to every song. And I just knew Everybody was going to come to Jesus because of this. And I praise God that we didn't have the internet and videos on phones and things back then that we have now. Because it is long gone. But my zeal was there. I had experienced the love of Jesus. I, I had gone from hopelessness to having life. Eternal life. And everywhere I looked around, it—it all of my friends, and I saw their hurt. I saw their dependence on drugs. I saw their depression. I saw their hopelessness. And I wanted them to know about Jesus as well. Now, Paul had a lot of reasons that he could have made excuses, didn't he? Well, I've just become a Christian. You know what I did? They, they probably wouldn't listen to me. I should just be quiet. I'm so thankful Jesus has saved me, but I've done so much bad, so much wrong. No, Nobody will hear me. He could have easily said, I'm, I'm not in my home. This isn't, this isn't where I live. I'm just temporarily here. But Paul didn't make excuses. He began proclaiming Jesus is the Christ. Now, here's an interesting thing about Paul at this stage. You might say, well, but this is, this is Paul. This is the Apostle Paul. This is Saul of Tarsus, a man of great learning. He, he studied under Gamaliel. He he says, you know, he was he was a notable person in Israel. He knew the Bible. Well, he still had to grow. Look at verse 22. It says, "Paul kept increasing in strength." And that strength there means the strength of his understanding of the gospel his strength of his application of the gospel his strength in being able to to speak with rabbis and leaders of synagogues and and other jewish people to be able to declare to them that jesus is god that he is the son of god he's strengthened in that and friends you will strengthen in that as well so often we hear individuals if we're honest And they refuse to tell others about Jesus. And the reason that they refuse to tell others about Jesus is because they're afraid they won't know what to say. They're afraid that they'll get stumped. They're afraid that they won't have all the right answers. Well, I have news for you. With all of the learning that I've had, with all of the seminary classes that I've had, there are times when I don't exactly think I have the right answer. And there is one answer that is universal and acceptable in that moment. I don't know. Let me get back with you. And I have to do it. You see, if we wait until we think we have it all figured out, we'll continue to make excuses. How much better is it to go in the strength of the Lord To give testimony to Jesus Christ, to see the Holy Spirit work in your life, to see people grow and to be changed and called into the Lord as an imperfect disciple being used by a perfect Savior. What was Saul's message? What was it that he went and said? Was it something grand and elaborate to which he was defeating all of the argumentation that was coming at him? Was it, was it something amazing and astounding and a secret knowledge that, that only we can get from spending you know, uh, 20 years with Jesus? No, it was rather a simple message, wasn't it? I, I, if you look here, it says, what did he say? Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. This is the heart of what he went and said. He went and said, Jesus is the Son of God. In doing that, in the Jewish mind and in the background of the individuals that he was speaking to, they would have understood a lot. First of all, they they would understand God. (laughs) They knew of sin and the need for salvation. And he is proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the fulfillment. He is not just a man. He is the Son of God. And because he's the son of God, he can offer salvation because he's atoned for our sin. You see, the same message is really the heart of the same message that we have today. You don't know what to say to individuals, but just start where he started. Jesus is the son of God. This creates everyone with what's called the the great trilemma. Jesus said that he is the son of God. Jesus said that he is uh, the fulfillment. Jesus allowed people to worship him as God. And so there's three options. The first, as you could say, is Jesus is a liar. He's he's a liar, and I refuse to believe him. The, The second is you could say he's a lunatic. He just thought he was something. Or he truly, really is Lord. That's a great argument in our culture. In our culture, where everybody is somewhat acquainted with the person of Jesus, where, someone, where everybody celebrates Christmas, if you go around and ask people a simple question, what do you think about Jesus? Who do you think Jesus is? You'll get some interesting answers. Well, I think he was a good moral teacher. All right, well, let's run with that. Was he Lord? No, he was just a good moral teacher. Well, he said he was the son of God. How could he be a good moral teacher if you're saying (laughs) that he wasn't, but he said he was? Do you see the trilemma that that produces? And so just simply proclaiming the message and and asking other individuals, and opening gospel conversations and saying, what do you think about Jesus? Provides so many opportunities for us to bear witness about who Jesus is. And that's simply what Paul did. Paul navigated and founded himself in spots where he could present who Jesus was and then respond to any criticisms or or anything. And more and more he grew in knowledge, he grew in wisdom, he grew in his skill and ability to be able to proclaim the message and, and more and more God used him in great and powerful ways. Now that's Something that every believer can do, isn't it? Are we thoughtful of that? Are we mindful of that? Are we engaged in going and sharing the gospel wherever God calls us that we might proclaim that Jesus is Lord? The second thing that that I want to show you is this. All believers should be engaged in growing. We should be engaged in growing. Now, I want to make this point um, not directly from Acts, but from Galatians 1, you can turn there if you'd like, but in Galatians 1, and there's a few other places in the Bible that, that Paul gives testimony. Paul gives a lot of testimonies as he uh, reacts and finds himself in different circumstances and in on trials. And in Galatians, he recounts what happens here where it says that he, that in, in Acts chapter 9, it says he was with them for a number of days, but it was actually a great number of days because in in Galatians, he says he was there for three years. You can l- let me read this for you. Galatians 1, verses uh, 15 through 18. But when he who had set me apart before God, before I was born, and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia, and I returned again to Damascus, and then, after three years, I went to Jerusalem to visit uh, Cephas and remained with him for 15 days. So what Paul is, is doing here in Galatians is defending his apostleship, that he is an apostle called by God, not by man. And, and he talks about this time that we just kind of blip over here in Acts, where it seems as though he for three years, he left. After he became a Christian, he, he left, went to Arabia, went out to the desert area. Um, it was probably during this time that Jesus revealed himself in many ways. Paul gives testimony to this, that, that at some point he was taken into heaven. He doesn't know if it, was a, if it was an actual vision or if he was actually taken into heaven. It was so real. But it would have been during this time that as Paul prayed and sought the scriptures and began to make the connections about how how all the Old Testament pointed to Jesus as Jesus did to the disciples uh, after his resurrection, Paul began to learn and understand the way that the, that the, the scriptures fit together, that the testimony of Jesus is found throughout the Old Testament and Paul began to share that. Paul began to explain that and he began to grow in knowledge. If you ask a seminary president why uh, a master's divinity a, a seminary degree takes three years they'll usually say this Paul was in the desert for three years before he started his ministry and so that's why they make us spend three years that's the best argument that I've ever heard for it but this was his seminary time so to speak he took it very serious and he had to take it very serious sound doctrine is the foundation for a life that honors God as a disciple and sound doctrine is the foundation for a church that will honor God without seeking to grow without seeking to understand the scriptures we will be tossed to and fro by every wave by every vacillation of the wind by every hot new popular take that comes out on social media will be back and forth because we do not know the scriptures. Friends, we live in a day and an age where the average Christian is very ignorant of the scriptures. We've learned catchphrases. We've learned bits and pieces of highlights from the scripture. But all too often, we've not spent time before the word of God. We've not read through the scriptures. We've not read seeking to know the meaning of the scriptures that God gave. Instead, we read it in such a way that we just look for where we might find ourselves in the stories. Such is dangerous. We need to be people who are growing, who are intentionally spending time in prayer, in the word, who are utilizing good, solid uh, resources to help us grow in our faith. We all need to be Growing. Paul was growing here. He was in Arabia studying. Again, I think he was preaching also while he was there because apparently he, um, the king of that, that region became displeased with Paul that we read about in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and he had to escape again. Paul does lots of amazing escapes. But that leads us to our next point. And it's this, all believers should be engaged in groaning, in groaning. Look at verse 23 in chapter 9 here of Acts. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Paul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when they had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples But they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Now often when an individual comes to faith in Jesus Christ, they may naively, or under the ministry of someone who uh, doesn't teach the gospel very fully, come to some kind of an understanding that if I become a Christian, everything from there on out is roses, butterflies, and unicorns. It's not. In fact... Most believers experience more temptation and more attacks against Satan any time that they put their faith in Christ. Any as a believer that we fight sin and we make a decision and we stand with Christ or we're led by the Holy Spirit that this is something that we're called to do immediately, that is the time that we seem to be most vulnerable and that Satan attacks more and more. And so here's one of the Here's one of the the guarantees of the Christian life. You will be groaning. Not everything is roses, butterflies, and unicorns. Think even of the Apostle Paul. Last week we looked at the verse in chapter 9 where the Lord speaks to Ananias and says, I'm sending you Paul, and Ananias goes, you know that guy, right? And God says, he is my chosen instrument to take the gospel to the Gentiles, and he will suffer much. Even Paul, we read through his life. Here he is. He's he's a servant of God. He loves Jesus. He's doing the will of God. He's given his life to serve God. And he's being snuck over walls and baskets. We'll read his testimonies throughout the scripture, and you'll hear about beatings and imprisonments, the suffering that he endures. Was he faithful to God? Yes. Yes being faithful to God doesn't always mean prosperity in this life. So be careful. There's two ways that, that we groan. There's, there's two ways that, that persecution and opposition and rejection come. The first is from without. We see that here in this text. Uh, from without the church. Paul is... Um, debating in the synagogues he's preaching that jesus is the son of god and as he's preaching that jesus is the son of god the the rabbis and the teachers are becoming more and more frustrated because his logic and his reasoning and his preaching is so true and consistent with the word of god that they don't know what to do and so instead of submitting their angry uh hearts grow bitter and they want to kill him and so here he experiences persecution from without and the reality of it is this if you are serious about jesus in your life if you're serious about wanting others to know about jesus there will be individuals who will not be happy about it there are individuals who are so uh, hateful against god so angry and so bitter so entitled and entangled in their own sinfulness that just the mention of Jesus makes their blood begin to boil. You add to that that the scripture is true and the little vein in their head starts to pound. You know the milkshake vein when you suck on a milkshake and it pops out? Right? Or, or my children know that vein. You begin to proclaim the gospel to them and tell them that they're a sinner That they've lived their life wrong. And they'll get angry. Sometimes spiteful. And there's a sense in which we, we can't be surprised. Because the gospel must offend. Now hear me out. We're not to be offensive people. But if we're proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a message that has to offend the natural man. The gospel of Jesus Christ, to be the gospel of Jesus Christ, has to say, you are a sinner and you have done sinful things and God's wrath will come upon you because of the sin that you've committed. You are not the stuff. You are not the sinner of the universe. God is. And for people who hate God, that is very offensive for people who love their sin and reject jesus that is very offensive now that's different than us being offensive right but the gospel must have an offense because people need to understand and know what they need to be saved from if you need a savior it means that there's some peril in your life and what the gospel of jesus christ is is that that peril is your sinfulness and your rejection of god And the salvation comes if you would trust in Jesus who has died for you and follow him as your Lord and Savior. Repent of your sins and trust in him. You will be saved. No matter what the sin, Christ will save you. But some people will take great offense to that. And we must be ready. Unfortunately, I mean, that makes a lot of sense, right? What doesn't so often make sense is when we face opposition and persecution from within the church. That hurts. That hurts. Here Paul goes and he goes to Jerusalem. He goes to meet with the apostle. He goes to meet with the, with the, with the mother church, if you would. And he goes, and and did you see what they said? They're like, no, you can't come here. They rejected him. He's not a believer. We know what he's done. Now, the Bible doesn't give a whole lot of introspection into what happened there, but I have to imagine that hurt. Here Paul is. He's changed his life. He's dedicated his life for three years to following Jesus Christ. He's proclaimed Jesus throughout the synagogues of Arabia and in Damascus, and he goes back to Jerusalem, and and, and he wants to to be greeted in fellowship and, and the brotherhood of the church. And instead, he meets rejection. Often, especially new believers, are not prepared for the fact that people in the church are still sinners struggling with sin even though we're redeemed and sometimes they're disillusioned and there's great hurt that can happen even amongst a body of believers i I can tell you i've been more hurt by church people than not church people in my life and i know many of you have as well and i know many individuals have suffered that and I just want to say a couple of things. First, I'm sorry. It shouldn't be. Second, try to extend grace and forgiveness to individuals. Third, don't give up on Jesus. Don't 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 give up on Jesus. He loves you. And fourth, I want to encourage you don't give up on the church don't don't give up on the church. You might need to go to a different place. You might need to find a different family. But don't give up and don't walk away. I see far too many individuals that because they have they have been hurt in church, especially young believers, new to the church, they've come, they've been they've been judged, they've been rejected, you know, very much like Paul. Well, we know who you used to be. They're not given any opportunity. Their ideas aren't Listen to, and they become isolated from the church. And the moment you do that, you become an easy target for the devil. This leads us to the fourth lesson. The fourth lesson is this all believers should be engaged in guiding. Should be engaged in guiding. I love this passage. Look at verse 27. But Barnabas, Barnabas, the encourager, good old Barnabas. Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared how on the road he had seen the Lord who had spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. And so he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of Jesus the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. And they were seeking to kill him. Good old Barnabas. He, he comes in and he sees Saul. And he convinces, takes Saul back to the apostles and convinces the apostles that he is the real deal. That he's been saved by Jesus. That, that he has a testimony of serving Jesus and growing in Jesus and proclaiming the name of Jesus. And, and he guides him. He he brings them back. All too often, older Christians are too quick to err and criticize younger believers. They're all too often uh, quick to uh, despise the differences that they might have between generations. And they isolate instead of build up. Friends, if you're a mature Christian in Christ, you should be engaged in guiding younger generations. You should be excited that that new people are coming to the Lord, that that different people are coming to the Lord, that young people are coming to the Lord. Who's going to be here when you're gone? Because it's going to happen. I'm sorry. (laughs) What we see here is a Mature Christian in the church, Barnabas. He sees this young believer that had, he had one heck of a story, didn't he? He had sinned a lot. His sin was well known. And he comes and he brings him and he encourages him. And we'll see throughout Acts, as we go through Acts, that this isn't the only time that Barnabas is going to show up and assist Paul. Throughout the missionary journeys, Barnabas is going to be there. The first missionary journey, guess who goes with Paul? Barnabas. And he goes and he, he leads him. And, and, and in, in one sense, we think of the great Apostle Paul, but the great Apostle Paul had an older, mature believer in his life encouraging and guiding him, and that was Barnabas. Isn't that great? As a believer, we should be praying and looking forward to how the church will survive past us, to how the gospel will continue to be proclaimed. We should live in such a way that our lives would be an example and that we can guide and mentor and shape the next generation who will be the leaders of the church. And so this leads us to our last point here. All believers should be engaged in gathering, in gathering. Look at verse thirty. When the brothers learn this, so so Paul's going to be, they're coming after Paul again. So they, they've got to move him again, right? Where's, where's Waldo? No, it's where's Paul in the book of Acts. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. And so throughout all of Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace. So the church throughout all of Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And It multiplied. This is one of those uh, passages, we have seven progress reports as we read through the book of Acts, seven times where it, it kind of pauses in, in a change in the story and the flow of everything and says, and the Lord, the, the, the Spirit, the, the Word grew, the church grew, the Spirit grew, the people grew. This is one of those times. He, he, Luke notes here that this is a sweet moment in the church. The church had had, had peace. It had not had peace since the stoning of Stephen. And the church was dispersed and persecuted and men like Saul were sent out to go and to persecute and to uh, arrest individuals. And they would go back to Jerusalem and they would face trial and death. And so now we have a moment since this great one who was the persecutor now has become a Christian. It seems as though the persecution has has eased off and the church has a, a time of sweet fellowship that they're together. But here's the important thing to note. In a time of peace and a time of comfort, they did not stop making the gospel the main thing. It says they continued to increase in number. What can happen so often is we can get comfortable and we can forget about the conditions of the souls of people around us without Christ we have to remember this they they gathered and they, and they came together but it wasn't about stuff it was because uh, people are precious to the lord people's souls matter for all of eternity and and when they were walking in the lord together walking in the fear of the lord together the spirit was amongst them and the spirit was working and doing great things in them i'm reminded today that people are precious We often find ourselves in periods of peace, and we become comfortable and stagnant. We try to preserve a memory of the past instead of ministering to our community now. Tonight, I want to encourage you. This is going to be one of these moments in our church where where we get to look and say, how do we engage? How do we encourage? How are things that we can do as we talk about this room here, about the sanctuary. And I want to encourage you, all the members of the church, to be here and talk. I'm, I'm very excited about the work that the Sanctuary Renovation Committee has put together, trying to be uh, good stewards and, and take care of um, issues and refresh what we have, that this might be a tool. This is a tool. This this church could burn down and we would meet in the parking lot next Sunday. Do you realize that? That hurricane The eye of the hurricane came over Titusville. It could have been much stronger, and we'd be in the parking lot today because we're not the building, we're the people. I got news for you. If this church was to be as successful as a church could be and to endure until the day that Jesus returns, do you know who's going to destroy this building? Christ is in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, I'm not saying that this isn't wonderful and we shouldn't preserve and take care of what we have. This is a tool. That's why I want you to realize. This building is a tool. We are the church. This is a tool that we have where we can gather together and where we can, we can minister to Jesus together. And so we need to utilize it as that. Now, again, I'm excited. Tonight, there's a, as, as the presentation comes, there's a refresh And we need it. It's been a long time since we've refreshed this room. And and I'm very excited, again, about the work that the committee has done. There's one surprise that you'll find in the report. And it was a surprise for me. As we begin to think about seating, there's one issue. And the the issue is is that as we begin to think about the budget and and timeline and everything else, uh, our pews, it's time to do something different, I believe, for a few reasons. One. We have termites in some of our pews. We've tried over the years many different ways to treat them. And those little suckers, they really like our pews. They really like them. Um, Our pews don't meet fire codes for egress. Every year the fire marshal comes and inspects. And he tells me something like this. Pastor, I'm not going to force you to change it. But I want you to know that if there was an emergency, people would have a very hard time getting out. And he overlooks a lot of things in this building. (laughs) Financially, restoring the pews would cost almost double of replacing them with a high-quality, nice pew chair. Flexibility. A pew chair would offer all kinds of flexibility to utilize the room for ministry in different ways to to be able to do maintenance in the room that we just can't do with fixed, huge pews in the place all the time. And then the last is comfort. Comfort. Um, at the end of the service, we have a, we have a demo chair of, of what we're going to propose. I'll bring it down. I want everybody to sit in it. Um, it's the wrong color, <laughs> but it's the right chair. So you, you, you'll have to imagine that. It'll, it'll feel the same but be a different color. But as I begin to talk with individuals in the church and hear this, one thing that I've heard over and over again is that there's a lot of individuals that can't regularly gather because they physically hurt to be in the church. They physically hurt to sit. I don't realize that because I stand the whole time. <laughs> and more and more, I've, I've heard that a friend of mine, pastor of South Orlando Baptist Church, they did the same thing in their sanctuary. So if, you, if you ask around, all kinds of churches are doing this because when it comes down to it, the, the finances and the resources of it and the the flexibility, all the things that I've said just, just make sense. But, but the issue... Um, he said that uh, the first Sunday that they put him in, he had a, a woman that came up crying. I said, Pastor, this is the first time I've come to church in years, and my back doesn't hurt. So I want you to come with an open mind and an open thought. It was a shock to me to think about something different like that. But again, when we begin to, to think about the, uh, the, the options and, and all the research that was done, um, I, I think that this is a... Uh, a a good plan and uh, and and i want to encourage you if you're a member of the church to be here and and to hear the presentation let's wrap this up whatever it is we need to walk in the lord together in the fear of the lord together And we need to remember that people are precious how we interact with each other what we do everybody has a place everybody's been gifted and jesus has saved all of us who are saved that we would do something for him As we conclude, let me ask you a couple of questions. One, are you a believer in Christ? Have you accepted Christ? Perhaps you're hearing this and and you know that it's time to trust in Christ. That you want to be a part of that family. Friends, I want to encourage you. The Apostle Paul is a wonderful example of an individual to show the, the nature of God and forgiveness. He loves you. Would you confess your sin? Would you trust in him? Would you... Call out to the Lord, and would you be saved? If you are saved, no matter how long you've known the Lord, we should be engaged in these things that we see in Paul's life. We should be engaged in going and proclaiming the gospel and being a witness for Jesus wherever he would put us. We should be engaged in growing, seeking to, to grow in the Lord. We should be seek to be groaning, to know that as we are faithful to the Lord that we're going to meet opposition inside and and outside of the church and to handle that in such a way that it doesn't deter us from living for Jesus. We should seek to be guiding instead of criticizing others and, and and different things and younger people. We should help them to grow in the Lord that they can be all that he has called them to be. And last, we should be engaged in gathering. We should be a part of the church We should gather, we should put our personal preferences to the side for others out of love. Are we doing those things? Is there something specifically that the Lord is saying that you need to do? That you've been part of the mothball Christian Navy. And it's time that you would do what the Lord would have you to do. We're going to pray in response. If there's one of those things, would you pray and respond to the Lord? Perhaps there's something that you would like to be prayed over. I invite you to come forward. A decision to be made. We'd love to have you come and do that. Whatever it is the Lord is leading you to, would we respond to him now?